This is the Tactical Leader Podcast, where we're on a journey of self-mastery and true leadership. I believe that in order to lead others, you must first be able to lead yourself. And in order to lead yourself, you have to first know yourself. If you want to learn the tactics to get to know yourself, to lead yourself, and to lead others, stay tuned to hear from industry experts as I unpack the tactics that they've used to build their business, build culture, and lead others. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Tactical Leader. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Nealon, and we're going to talk about the cult collective and everything he is building in that world. Before we begin, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you are a podcaster or YouTuber, you want to create tactical content that delivers, head over to nightly.productions to find out how we can help you discover, embrace, and share your voice through podcasting and YouTube. Again, that's nightly.productions. Chris, welcome to the show, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Zach. I'm excited to be here. And I am really excited about this because you have a fascinating background. Obviously, I mentioned you're the co-founder and CEO of Cult Collective, uh, but give the audience just a little bit more information about you. You're also the co-founder of Kimono Inc. and The Gathering, a Forbes top-rated business conference. You help brand leaders develop better ways to engage with customers, prospects, and staff by applying eight common characteristics discovered while researching the most iconic cult-like brands on the planet. You really got this experience through positions, uh, marketing positions at John Deere, Home Depot. You were previously head of retail marketing at Rap. Um, you've also consulted with brands like Harley-Davidson, Zappos, Best Buy, Canadian Tire, Keurig, GoDaddy, and so many more. Uh, you really believe that advocacy trumps awareness and that most brands have an unholy addiction to mass advertising and markdowns. You have a phenomenal pedigree attached to this marketing world. And obviously, we're going to chop that up a little bit on Cult Collective. Before we dive into the business conversation, what's a fun fact that we might not know about you from that bio? Well, I don't know if there's anything fun from that bio. I mean, there's something curious where this career has taken me on east, on both coasts, uh, the Midwest, and in two countries. So um, I, I just recently returned back to the U.S. after spending 11 years in Canada so uh, it's been fun to try to not only determine which of these principles are universally applicable, but also to see the local, regional sort of cult favorite diner, the cult favorite band. The, the, there's a lot of you know, interesting nuances between living in the Rocky Mountains or living in, on the East Coast that uh, um, helps us, I think, just even more believe that there are businesses that people really, really care about. And uh, we're trying to decode and figure out how and why. What are they doing that gets people so lathered up? And it's really fascinating because you talk about. Uh, you told me before we started recording. You used to be in the Atlanta area, um, and you know Atlanta has, and they probably won't appreciate the comparison. Um, but Atlanta has Chick Fil A, um, yeah. one of the biggest cult type brandings you can ask for with the Lord's Chicken and all the deliciousness that Chick Fil A offers. But then. That's not, I'm, I'm assuming, I don't know, you tell me, is it across the country? Is it one of those, is it in Canada? Is it one of those that's just in the Southeast? Is that kind of one of those you looked at and saw like there is a following attached to something like Chick-fil-A? So uh, short answer is uh, hell yes. Chick-fil-A is such a fascinating brand. I actually was privileged to get a tour of their beautiful campus kind of hidden back there by the Atlanta airport. I don't think people appreciate how special it is. It, it feels more like a, 
like one of the plantation homes of the 1800s, just miles of winding roads and green fields and big, beautiful homes as opposed to big high rises. Like they, they office out of these different sort of house type of environments. Have, have you been there, Zach, and seen what I'm talking about? I have not, unfortunately, but it sounds uh, like an awesome little spot. I'm sure hidden away right by the airport. Well, and the guy, somewhere. to make it even more quirky, the founder, or at least the, the person in charge now, has a car collection. So you'll see these old antique cars along the way, and then you'll see like the Batmobile, right? Like some weird thing that they, they bought at auction someplace. And uh, it's obviously a very religious, very Christian brand. They have big uh, sort of beautiful statues of like the 10 commandments and uh, they, uh, they pray before their meetings. It's a, it's just uh, an example of, and they obviously make a great chicken sandwich. It's just an example of a business that can represent more than revenue. And uh, it's very um, alienating. There's people that love it. There's people that hate it. And that's also one of the symptoms of a cult brand is not trying to be all things to all people but to know who you are, what you stand for, and see if that can attract a certain similarly valued or principled person to you. And I want to highlight that piece overall with um, cult ideas, the cult brand piece of it, where um, a big piece of it is really uh, making impressions instead of buying impressions, which in the marketing world, everybody talks about vanity metrics and different aspects on social media. Can you kind of just break down what you're doing in this cult collective marketing world and, and how you kind of break that apart about making an impression instead of buying them? Yeah. So it's really, it, it falls into three buckets. So the first bucket is investigation or research. We are always on the lookout for businesses that are displaying the attributes or the symptoms of a cult brand. And there's five specific things that, that we look at, we can get into if you're interested. But so every year, we're constantly renewing the pipeline of candidates and some cult brands are falling off. Just because you've achieved cult brand status doesn't mean that you're perpetually a cult brand. It's You have to be relentlessly relevant and, and continue to do things that, that, um, that earn that sort of uh, affinity and adoration. Because of that research, we've been able to sort of decode eight specific behaviors and belief systems. It's as much about paradigms, Zach, as it is practices. It's, there's a lot of reasons why businesses fail to achieve cult brand status is they just don't believe the same things that cult brand leaders do. You mentioned one example. Lots of people think that the best thing to do with their marketing and advertising dollars is to buy impressions. They chase mass awareness. They chase eyeballs. And that is not often the, um, the primary driver of what cult brands are trying to do, which, as I said, is to make impressions and to have a lasting impact and to get somebody to talk uh, about you behind your back. So we spend one third of our time researching these cult brands, one third of our time simply then teaching people what we found. That's why I go on podcasts, we write our books, we host events, we do daily social content. And then we do about a third of our time actually helping and assisting businesses that are so intrigued to say, well, why don't we do that? And maybe they know how, they just don't have the capacity, or maybe they don't know how, they lack the competence. And so we can come in and assist them. And that's also very rewarding because it's very fun to see new cult, brand, cult brands being birthed and to 
growing up and becoming like the next big Coca-Cola there in your neck of the woods. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta has several in that realm that were, were started here. And it's really fascinating to kind of see this get dissected across. And uh, I want to make sure I, I give a shout out to your podcast because you really dissect these brand by brand on your podcast hitting uh, season three. Now it looks like, and you kind of dive into that aspect. Do you dissect the brand as a whole and kind of uh, highlight where they're really good, really bad? What's the podcast about? No, the podcast, the beauty of the podcast is it's not about me, right? So I, I do a lot to try to evangelize our ideology, but I'm also not unbiased. Like I want people to believe what I believe and I want people to pay me to help them do what I think they can do. So the podcast is actually the leaders themselves. The cult brand leaders are telling their story and sharing examples of the bold or sometimes scary decisions that they've had to make in order to reap the benefits of cult-like status. So yeah, today we just uh, came out with the Yeti podcast, which um, uh, is, I think, one of the great cult brands of the past 10 years. And so you can hear straight from their head of marketing talking about what they believe and how they behave. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because, I mean, there are so many brands when you think about it, Apple versus Android, Nike, uh, Starbucks, even a few years ago, they're not as strong now, but a few years ago, you looked at a caribou coffee, right? Again, there's so many brands that have been iconic in that realm. You mentioned that there are characteristics attached to that. Can you give us a a high level view of like what it takes to really become this cult brand and how you uh, calculate that? I know you have a scorecard attached to it. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So the, um, so it's two questions, right? So there's the, what are the symptoms or attributes of a cult brand? And then what are the principles or activities that they adhere to, to maintain or achieve that cult brand status? So the attributes, the things that we're always looking for first and foremost, probably head and shoulders above all the others is a quantifiable metric of emotional attachment to a brand. I am really concerned that most businesses think that by having a high net promoter score, they are somehow relevant or adored. And it's just not true. There's no correlation between net promoter score, which I'm actually not a fan of that KPI at all, other than its simplicity of administration. But I think the same reason why we got into trouble and there's now $300 billion of paid media is not because it's effective, but it's because it's simple. It's easy. (laughs) Media companies have done a great job over-indexing on efficiency, knowing that they're under-delivering on effectiveness. And I would put net promoter score in that same bucket. So it's a podcast for a different day, but we call it customer EQ or customer uh, emotional intelligence. But there are several firms, ourselves included, that can best measure how bought into a brand is a customer. And you know they might use different language about, I'm not just aware of it. I'm not just likely to refer it, but it's a representation of my feelings, beliefs, and values. And I'm being my best self when I patronage that brand, when I wear that brand, when, I, when I'm associating with that community that the brand has fostered, et cetera. So, I mean, obviously I got... Uh, the extreme example would be like a Harley Davidson, right? A Harley Davidson fosters a community of riders, CrossFit community, I think is another great example of, it's a decent gym, but it's a remarkable community. So that's what we're looking for first and foremost. Then you get into some attributes about lower than average uh, paid media spend or advertising spend. You know, again, at the extreme example, you get a Tesla 
category leading, you know, category disrupting automotive company with no measurable paid media spend at all. And you start to say, well, <laughs> how did that happen? How does somebody dominate a category? But they're not alone in that. Spanx, which is a great Atlanta brand out of your neck of the woods, same thing. Little to no paid media spend. And then you get, you know, uh, Costco, Kiehl's Pharmacy. I mean, there's, there's actually more examples than people would imagine. I would have guessed, Zach, that you didn't get on to Snapchat, TikTok, or TikTok or uh, Facebook because of a TV commercial, right? There's these brands that have become prevalent in people's lives are finding other ways to interact with us besides their investments in paid media. Uh, there's another correlation around premium price point. A lot of luxury branding correlates. A lot of challenger branding correlates, but we... Cult brands have a higher percentage of sales at full price. Non-cult brands are in a perpetual state of discounting and uh, bribery uh, to try to beg people to come in. I I like to say cult brands have marketing departments and non-cult brands have markdowning departments because they have not reaped any of the benefits of cult status. Therefore, they're just in a constant state of please bias, please bias, and filling our inboxes and mailboxes with junk coupons. And then there's a really fascinating one that we did not expect to discover, which dealt with internal engagement and the level of productivity and passion. Uh, we like to say that mediocre brands have employees and cult brands have evangelists, that these are people who are advocating on behalf of the brand to come work here. Uh, and that, that was always kind of this, I don't want to say cute, but it was always kind of this interesting attribute that has become paramount through the great resignation. And in the past two years, There's a lot of clients or a lot of businesses that aren't achieving their success, not because the marketplace doesn't want it, but because they can't staff fast enough. They can't open the dining room. They don't, they can't keep the the bank branch open as long. They can't, uh, you know, have the sales force uh, or the call center staffed appropriately. So when the inability to have enough employees becomes a hindrance to your growth, I would hope that people would be humbled enough to say, well, what are the other, what are the cult brands doing where you take somebody like Zappos, statistically speaking, it's harder to get into Harvard University than it is to get a job, or it's harder to get into Zappos than it is to get into Harvard University because they've done such a remarkable job investing in culture that tens of thousands of people are sending unsolicited resumes. It's one of the things we like to look at when we're looking at a cult brand is how, how much are you spending on recruiter fees? How much are you spending on job fairs versus how much are you just culling through this bombardment of you know resumes that you're getting because people are begging to work there. So I riffed there for a while. I'll take a breath and let you digest that. Well, you had so many great points attached to it. And there's several questions I had off of that or, or several points I really highlighted. Um, and, and you mentioned paid media and uh, paid marketing, that aspect of things compared to organic. And a lot of people and, and we brought up Spanx and Sarah Blakely. I know her and Jesse um, Itzler. They're obviously they're like co-owners of the Atlanta Hawks. They built a massive empire. Jesse Itzler's more, rep, arguably more successful than Sarah Blakely. Just Sarah's well known, right? But you look at they where they built uh, really interesting aspects of things. Um, and Sarah, looking at how she built Spanx. The origin story behind Spanx is that she kept getting turned down by all these department stores. And then what she ended up doing is she had 20 girlfriends going to these same department stores, ask for this item, 
And then, oh, we don't sell it. We don't sell it. We don't sell it. And then the next week she went back and sold it to the department stores. She created supply and demand attached to the launching of Sphinx, which essentially is marketing. But a lot of people think marketing these days is like digital, social media, paid marketing, like you're talking about. From what it sounds like, you're, you're talking about these cult brands go beyond the social media platform, go beyond the digital, go beyond the, the aspect of like networking in person, going and shaking a hand. Can you kind of surmise that in, in your idea of what makes a cult brand? Like, is it going that far beyond or is marketing really stretching beyond just that aspect of things? I th- what we like to say is that we're trying to reclaim the noble discipline of marketing done well. In the, in the proliferation of complexity of channels, most marketing departments became more expert at channels. You look at an org chart at some of the largest companies and they will have an email marketing team, a social media marketing team, a PR team, maybe a mass media team, an e-commerce team. It's like the, the, these channels are means to an end. What, what you should have are customer segment managers. You should have marketers who are the voice of the customer. We just did a thing the other day with the CMO of uh, the head of North American Marketing for Converse, right? And he says, my job is not to understand all of these channels and maximize the ROI by campaign. My job is to be the voice of the customer. I had a great word for it. Some sort of, let me see if I can see my notes here real quick an obsessed observer. (laughs) He called himself the company's obsessed observer of youth culture and understanding what is happening with Gen Z and what are the things that they're talking about, worried about. And if 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 Converse wants to connect in some way, sure, at some point, some channel expert's going to have to say, here's how you'll manifest on TikTok or here's how you're going to activate at a skate park. But those are tactics. And yet most of our practitioners have become experts at the tactics and they have forgotten who's actually understanding what consumers are thinking, feeling, and doing, who's adjusting to those preferences, which are changing wildly, and who's reacting and responding appropriately to how competitors are delivering on that to maintain some form of advantage. And that those are just, I think, perpetually strategic questions that People think maybe they did it an offsite three years ago, and now they're just optimizing their email open rates. It's like, no, you guys have got that ass backwards. You should be optimizing your customer insights and the ways that you choose to engage with them, not just from a messaging standpoint, but what products do you even have to offer? What price points? What distribution channels? What strategic partnerships, right? Those are the things that marketers used to spend a lot more time on than they're doing today. And we're talking about these large organizations that have the funds, the the staff, they have the people to go about this. If you break it down to a brand that's starting, just getting started, or maybe has five to 10, 20 employees, a small business overall, obviously you want to replicate the impact of these large brands we're talking about. Is that something that's capable of a solopreneur or a small business owner? Is this something that we should be thinking about at this level or planning for at year five once there's some growth and scale happening? Where does this fall in that line of growth? Uh, it's day one. And, and I actually, we really like working with small businesses because they have less bad habits to break. But like, if you're trying to compete against a company that has a Super Bowl commercial and you don't have the money for that, then you, by necessity, can't use 
Super Bowl commercials or television advertising as a tactic, which we would say that's an asset. That's, that's a feature, not a bug, right? The fact that they're wasting their money on those types of channels is, is a, to your advantage because they cost, I mean, they're, they're basically twice as expensive and delivering half the value nowadays when you start looking at CPMs and viewership rates. And so it's like, you should be grateful that your competitive set is di- distracted trying to keep up in all of these different places. And you can pick, you know, it's guerrilla warfare. You can find the one or two places that you could be hyper relevant. Maybe it's on TikTok. Maybe it's going door to door. Maybe it's doing something post-purchase. I remember one of my favorite other cult brands of the past decade is a Traeger Grills. And Traeger Grills was a small, little, are you familiar with Traeger's act? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a smoker. So they're in the barbecue industry, but they're more about using wood pellets to smoke meat as opposed to flame broil or charcoal to grill it. And, you know, they looked at their entire customer journey, which is one of the things that cult brands are really masterful at is, you know, finding the moments between moments that they can make impressions because they don't have the big budgets to go and do a bunch of top of funnel stuff. They have to find ways that when everybody buys, they go get three other people to buy. And so the Traeger looked at their delivery system and they would be dropping off. Uh, you know, you can imagine the amount of cardboard. It's like getting a refrigerator delivered to your house. And that is not an insignificant moment. For most people, the marketer would say, my job's done. The person bought it. Let me go find somebody else to buy one. But at Traeger, they said, my goal wasn't to get that customer. My goal is to get that customer to tell three more people to buy a Traeger. So they completely considered the experience of when that box shows up, what's happening and how's it going to feel like to assemble this? And how does that become the highlight of your day? Not the drudgery of I don't get to enjoy anything until my grill is set up. And then they went so far as to say, what happens when the grill is now done and you're ready to have your first barbecue? Well, you got this all this cardboard that you have to dispose of. And they repurposed the inside lining of the cardboard to look like a log cabin so that you could duct tape it back together as a play fort for your kids. And you can Google this and you can see the number of people that then pull out their camera and take a picture of this thing. And that's free advertising. And that's them advocating, look at how thoughtful, look at how informed, look at how insightful Traeger was to leave no moment unturned. And you know, I don't care. I, I, I've done stuff with, you know, uh, companies that aren't even a million dollars doing pest control to companies in your neck of the woods like Home Depot that make hundreds of billions of dollars. There is no such thing as a business that can't find moments and elevate them for low cost and in ways that just demonstrate that I'm paying attention. And, and I love how you, you frame that. Trigger grill. I mean, that obviously, I mean, that's phenomenal marketing, right? You talk about guerrilla, guerrilla tactics, guerrilla marketing from the military background and instantly made sense to me. It's like, you're in, you're in the trenches, right? You're, you're doing this, this tough, really face-to-face marketing type of aspect of things. And what's fascinating about the example you gave with Trigger Grills, it kind of outlines something beyond the grill. And I was just having a conversation with um, a, a client of mine that's an insurance, State Farm insurance, right? And he kept talking about creating his own group, right? His own brokerage for insurance, but didn't want to break away from State Farm because it's the big brand name. I have to have State Farm in this, this, and this. Then you worry about regulations and marketing and you have to fit in this box. But what, what it sounds like with Traeger nailed is like going beyond the grill, 
right? When I was telling him, go beyond State Farm, go beyond this brand that you're kind of stuck in that is empowering you to sell what you're selling. But what more can you offer as a value add that creates marketing experience? Is that really where marketing kind of takes that next step where it creates this cult iconic brand of like, oh man, this did so much more than any other State Farm agent or any other grill could have done? Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, so one of the cult brand principles deals with your purpose. And, you know, Simon Sinek, eight or nine years ago, made a lot of money talking to us about our why. And I think a lot of people saw the TED Talk and maybe paid to have him speak, but they haven't really digested the significance of what he's talking about. And all he really did was find the same pattern that we had found going back well over 100 years, which is it's one thing to have a purpose. The, the, the harder leap of faith is to spend more calories talking about what you stand for than what you sell. Because a lot of people can have a corporate retreat or can have an annual report or can have a a lobby of their building where their noble purpose is communicated, but then they get right back to the business of doing what they do. And cult brands don't do that. Airbnb doesn't do that. Airbnb spends as much energy talking about imagining a world where people can belong anywhere. The, The example that I was thinking of, Zach, when you were talking was Lego right? Like Lego's purpose is not to sell more plastic toy blocks. Lego's purpose is to fuel children's imagination and give them the things that they need to have these remarkable childhoods. And when that's your purpose and the toy block sales are declining, mediocre brands would sit around and say, well, shoot, Maybe we should offer buy one, get one free sets, or maybe we should discount our price, or maybe we should send out a coupon. Maybe we should open more stores that sell more blocks. And they're thinking in the block mindset, but Lego was thinking in the imagination. Lego was more like Disney in that regard, one of the great cult brands of all time. And that's when they come out with the Lego movie, right? Think about the courage it took in a, in a market of declining sales to say, hey, give me $100 million to go make a movie. Lego's never, because Lego's not in the movie business, they're in the imagination business, and they realize that's another way to connect with consumers. And luckily for them, not only did that movie make a half a billion dollars, so just that marketing asset alone became revenue generating, but it reminded me, the dad, while watching this movie with my son, how much I love Lego, to where I've now got a Lego Star Wars thing in my office, right? And so that's an example, I think, of it was terrifying at the time to make that choice, which is why most businesses aren't cult brand. They don't do the scary thing. They always are looking for the easy way out. And Lego reimagined who it was and what it did. It got into the video game collaborations. Like I actually think Lego, you know, Batman or Lego Star Wars on the, on the gaming console is just as cool as playing with the toy blocks. And that's them. So it, it does sometimes like your friends selling the insurance, like, Does he really want to be in the insurance business or does he want to be in helping people live their best lives business? In which case, there's a lot of ways that he can bring that to pass. It's outside of State Farm's portfolio of product. That's Lego is a great example. Um, I have a, my goddaughter is about to turn six and I use her as an excuse to go watch a Lego movie, right? (laughs) Hey, let's go watch the movie. Uh, It's just for you. I promise. But I grew up playing with Legos and you're right. It fell off and that's such a great way. And Lego Batman, Lego Star Wars, way better than the actual games, in my opinion, which is fascinating to think that they shifted like that. 
If there was one company, and maybe this is too big of a question and, and put you on the spot for it, but if there's one company that we could look at, point to, and say, this is the way it should be done from the get-go, can you identify one that's like, yeah, this is the one you want to mirror? You know, it's tough because a lot of ones that uh, I do have my list of favorite cult brands, and you know, uh, we mentioned a couple of them already, like Disney and Lego, or I you could add the NFL to that list. You could add Star Wars to that list. You could even add something like the U.S. Army uh, to that list. I mean, America in and of itself is a remarkable brand that uh, is carefully guarded and, and has uh, implications in terms of tourism, for example, and immigration and things like that. I like to gravitate towards a good... I, I lived in Canada the past 11 years, and I saw the rise of Lululemon, this... Um, you know, what was essentially a stretchy pant. And if, uh, if Starbucks got credit for sort of creating the third place between home and work, uh, I think Lulu gets credit for creating the third acceptable legging between jeans and dresses for ladies. Huge. And, um, I'm a CrossFit guy. Uh, th- that yeah. whole gym industry has all of a sudden Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. Oh my God. And I first, I finally bought my first pair of Lulu about three months ago. And it's like, Oh my God, I made it. I have a pair of Lulu's now. Right. Yeah. That's a great brand. Is it a Canadian brand? Is that why? It, yeah. It was birthed out of Vancouver around wow. the time that I moved to Canada. Yeah. I actually was working with a retailer who was selling a competitive product. And so I went up against the the phenomenon that was the Lululemon cult brand and realized that even with a cheaper product, a better advertised product, a better discounted product, I couldn't steal or convert enough Lulu fanatics over to the other brand. So, and then even the fact that you just bought some, right? I mean, that wasn't the sweet spot. That's an example of how they've grown, not just geographically, but they've added new genders, new product mixes. Uh, but, you know, they got to a billion without any paid media. And I, I don't want to come across that. I, I'm often accused of being anti-advertising. I'm not. Most businesses need to do some form of paid media. I just wish that it was viewed as a unfortunate reality versus people seem to look forward to it. People seem to think that that's why I'm here. It should have been, no, that's a failure. We're having, like, think about, I just bought the Ford Bronco. That, that car is on back order for three years, right? They don't need an ad campaign, right? They, they, they need to shut off their advertising because they're creating demand. They can't be fulfilled uh, in the marketplace. I view that as a raging success. If you're having to be on the radio every Saturday or in the newspaper every week, that's a symptom of a failure. What are you doing that's causing you to have to do that? And, and maybe you are failing, so you have to do it. I just want people to kind of realize that what good looks like would be to do less and less of it and less and less discounting and find ways to get people to pay. Bronco should have charged 20 grand more for the car. That was the reality. They underestimated the appeal of what that brand really had the ability to do. And that's what that's why we're excited to say that it's still happening. That's happening right now amidst inflation, amidst $5.50 gas prices, and so, you know, amidst Ukrainian wars, like it's not these excuses that people like to come up with. If you look at the last recession, Starbucks took off in the last recession. Beats by Dre headphones took off in the last recession. Um, Netflix took off in the last recession. So we got to stop using these excuses of what these external you know, situations and say, no, if you're doing marketing right, you can overcome a lot of things, pandemics, et cetera. Yeah, I can't agree with that more. Like that, people look at paid media 
as being like the silver bullet. And they forget one, it's really hella expensive to get into a saturated market. If you're going to spend money on paid media to even create a ripple effect, you're talking a lot of marketing budget. When I think paid media, paid advertising is one of those things that will expose a poor brand and a poor product quicker than anything. You throw a bunch of money into that and all of a sudden you don't have everything else figured out, the foundation of marketing figured out. All of a sudden you're tanking your business because everybody's about to see that you don't have that figured out yet. Yeah. I, one of my favorite stories is not many people remember this, but years ago, maybe five or six years ago, Denny's ran a Super Bowl commercial and it was remarkably unremarkable. It essentially was like a 15 second picture of a, I think Grand Slam is IHOP, but whatever they call their breakfast, you know, two bacon, two egg, two sausage, two pancake breakfast. And, and they, and it said, I think it's called the Grand Slam breakfast. And it said, basically come in on Tuesday for a free Grand Slam breakfast. And, you know, in our trade, we like to always debate what was the best Super Bowl commercial. And everybody was talking about the little kid dressed in the Darth Vader costume that was making the, the Volkswagen beep or whatever. And it was, that was a very fun, creative commercial. But like number two was Denny's, which had no production costs, no, you know, creativity. And I, I talked to the CMO at the time. And it was huge. Over a million Americans went back to Denny's and had a free Grand Slam breakfast. And he said, Chris, we've been working on that commercial for three years. And what he meant was not that it took us three years to find the right photo and the right offer. It was, we got to get our restaurant and cleaned up. We got to improve our menu. We got to retrain our staff because the worst thing to do is to invite somebody back in and be like, this sucks, right? That is the fastest way to so Think about the risk. They had to invite millions of people back in to say, wow, I haven't been to Denny's for a while, but this place is actually pretty good. The food is good. The service is good. The, the, the menu variety is good. And that was certainly my experience. I, I'm actually not embarrassed to say, it. I know you're probably living in Waffle House country there in Atlanta, but I, I really <laughs> like Denny's. And I take my teenage boys to Denny's and I would never have considered them if somebody had more overtly said, give us another shot. And, uh, you know, the Domino's story is the same way. Another one of the great uh, uh, business turnarounds where they sat, kind of said, yeah, our pizza sucked. We don't need better advertising. We need better pizza. And then they just documented the whole thing and it became the single largest turnaround in fast food history. Which is phenomenal. You said Denny's. I'm like, I haven't seen a Denny's in a decade because, yeah, this is Waffle House country, right? Just like it's Chick fil A country. You're not Cracker Barrel. You got some Cracker Barrel. Lord have mercy. There's so many Cracker Barrels down here. Every dang exit has a Cracker Barrel. I love those concepts, man, because it really pushes the boundaries of what marketing is now and what it should be. Is there a resource? I know you have a ton of them. Is there a resource that the audience can go to that's like, hey, this is a great baseline? I know Story Brand by uh, Donald Miller was one of those that I read early on that gave me a concept of like marketing should be so much more. What would you recommend for the audience to go check out as that resource? Am I a douche if I recommend our own book? Like, not at uh, all. Like, not at all. Like, I, I was uh, egging towards it. Tell us about the book. Uh, yeah. Well, so I mean, we, we didn't find uh, a lot of great resources. And so we decided just to document and codify the, the research that we had done. So we wrote a book called Fix, a new cure, a new prescription to cure disengaged customers, prospects, and staff. And it's just it's this conversation. It's just example after example of brands that are doing it right, but within the framework of the eight cult brand principles. And so you can we kind of introduce you to a principle, show you how you know, half a dozen brands are living it, 
and then ask you some questions about what might you do in your business to start to apply that principle. I definitely am going to check that one out because there's so many examples attached to this and obviously way too many for us to go through on a single podcast. And I love that you're putting that content out there because um, y'all, y'all offer a ton of different things. And before we dive into the links and how they can find all this, I'm really curious, Chris, and this is something that in this marketing world can be so broad, but I'm curious, we, we talked about Simon Sinek, start with why, obviously he has a lot of great content. A lot of what I look at is that ending with why, that legacy piece. What's the legacy you're going to leave in the world by putting this idea out there, this cult collective out there? And I don't know why it's something, it's, whether it's a, an, a, a character flaw or a, a positive thing, I just feel saddened by the number of businesses that haven't achieved their potential. We, we have somehow settled for a transactional relationship, for grinding it out. And so the most fulfilling thing is not seeing a company make their next $100 million, but seeing people fall in love with their jobs again. And people falling in love with their companies again because when you are when you're with cult brand leaders, there's an enthusiasm and an optimism and a hope about life. They're just seeing good things, and I just feel like life is too short to just do the drudgery of having a boring business. And we're also particularly, I've had a chance to do some global travel, and I think we forget maybe one of the bad parts about being in a first world country is the over-commoditization of goods and services. Like when you go to a third world country and you go to a store, they have flour and they have sugar, right? They're just, it's commodities. But when you go to our supermarkets, it's 18 ranch dressings on the aisle. I was like, what happened that made somebody think we needed an eighth, much less an 18th option, right? And it's, it's kind of gross consumerism. And it, I think it's marketing gone awry, and um, I think we got to get uh, Elon Musk has a great quote uh, about entrepreneurs. And he was like, the secret to entrepreneurship is don't even start it if you can't do something that's 200% better. And we have way too many entrepreneurs that are doing things that are like 20% better. And the world doesn't really respond to 20% better that much. Like the Tesla was not 20% better than the neon leaf right? Or the, you know, the, the, the existing hybrids of the day. And, and so it really starts with, does the world even need this? Do we need another blah? And if the answer is yes, then honor that with enough marketing mastery to do it the right way, as opposed to introduce it the same way everybody else is just, you know, hawking their mediocre goods and services. I love that piece of it. Do it 200% better. And that's a tough conversation. Um, I, I just had Gina Wickman on the show a week or two ago, and he has a new book, Elite. And it talks about if you don't have this piece of being an entrepreneur, it's talking about taking the entrepreneurial leap. And if you don't have this piece of it, don't do it. If you're only going to be 20% better, don't do it. Because at the end of the day, you're fighting some massive brands out there that you meet, get met with frustration if you're not doing it right. And I love that. I want to give the audience the opportunity to figure out how to do it right. What's the the links to the book, the podcast, uh, everything you're doing, the best way to contact you, where can they find the book? Go ahead and give us everything to uh, continue looking at the cult collective as a whole. Uh, so probably I direct your listeners to three places. The, the hub for all of this thinking is at cultideas.com. 
daily social content case studies. You can find the book there. Uh, you can you can get us to come and speak or come and teach, do workshops, do classes, all this kind of stuff. I'd also direct their attention to cultgathering.com. Once a year, the world's best brands come and tell their stories. Uh, the podcast you mentioned is simply a uh, an audio recording. It's a kind of our version of TED Talks, but rather than all the fun things that they talk about at TED, we're just talking about how to better engage customers, prospects, and staff. And that, that event just happened. It happens in April, but the content is available to be viewed virtually and digitally. And then, and then me personally, I, I kind of limit my professional outreach to LinkedIn. And uh, you can follow me at Chris Nealon on uh, LinkedIn. I love it, Chris. I appreciate all that. I appreciate you bringing wisdom and value to the show. Um, I, I definitely encourage everybody to go check it out. Uh, check out the book, check out the podcast, everything marketing. Um, and definitely come back this Friday for Tactical Friday. We're going to break this down a little bit more for a couple action steps from Chris and everything with Colt Collective. Chris, thanks for your time, my friend. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Tactical Leader Podcast. If this episode helped you along your journey of self-mastery and has inspired you to do more, I challenge you to head over to myvoicechallenge.com so you can find out how you can discover your voice, claim your independence, and build that thriving business that you've always wanted. Again, that's myvoicechallenge.com.